All right. As you've already heard, we are diving into a new sermon series. Uh, let's do that with this question. Uh, how important is it to make and keep a promise? How important is it to be trustworthy? Well, I remember a kind of casual promise I made to a girl, a very first date with her. Her name was Kim. And um, I called her up, and uh, I was going to invite her to go to this concert on campus at North Texas State University, uh, where Hayden Fry actually earned his spurs. Um, and so uh, I asked her uh, about this, and, and maybe Michael Murphy, you probably have no idea who that is, but he's kind of like a crooner of my generation, like a Bruno Mars or a Sam Smith of the younger generation. And... Um, so I, I said, hey, you want to go meet with the concert? And she was like, can you get tickets? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get tickets. Uh, she said yes. I hung up the phone, called the ticket office, and guess what? Sold out. Completely sold out. Um, so promise made, but not promise kept. Now, ultimately, it did work out. I'm going to ask her to go out for ice cream. And we've been married for almost 42 years now. So, yeah. So yeah, that was some great ice cream. <laughs> but what about God? Does God have any promises for us? Can we take his promises to the bank? Ask yourself this question. Uh, what would you like an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, holy, loving, and just God? What would you want him to promise you? Uh, your honest answer to that probably says more about you than you might think. In Scripture, we see that God does indeed make promises and keep promises, promises of different kinds. Maybe you haven't heard it said this way, but some of God's promises are called prophecies. Here, God has declared in advance uh, events that uh, he will bring to pass, and every one of them in their time have come true. Second, some of his promises are declarations of, of healing. Uh, God speaks words of physical, uh, emotional, relational, spiritual restoration, and it happens. Third, some of his promises are descriptions of God's own unchanging character. God reveals himself. He reveals his attributes uh, to his creation, and he never, ever expresses himself contrary to that. And finally, uh, some of his pro uh, promises are directions on how to live in this life with eternity in mind. God gives us enduring wisdom for instruction to guide us on this earth because what we do echoes for eternity. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn a lot about God and his promises through his son, Jesus Jesus lives a life of promise that perfectly fulfills these ancient prophecies, miraculously heals people, clearly reveals God's majesty, and boldly manifests eternal life wherever he goes. I mean, not once, not once did Jesus stumble. Not once did he do the wrong thing. Not once did he fail to help others the way God wanted him to do. He is all about the kingdom of heaven. As we dive into the Gospel of Matthew, 
I'm just going to briefly reference the first two chapters. Uh, those refer to the, uh, to the Advent, Jesus' birth, and we, we celebrated that last month. Now, realize that Matthew uses more Old Testament quotations than any other gospel. In Matthew, there are at least 60 quotations to the Old Testament text and numerous other allusions to other Old Testament passages. And one of the reasons we entitled this sermon series A Life of Promise is for all of these promise fulfillment passages. Promises made, promises kept, based upon these ancient Old Testament texts. There are at least 10 of these ancient Promises fulfilled, texts referenced in the Gospel of Matthew. The best way to understand these prophecies about Jesus is seeing that the life of Jesus fulfills, completes all of the messianic promises of God found in the Scriptures. This is the way Jesus himself says it. Uh, He says this in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, which reads, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, meaning Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So everything that the Old Testament has said about God and the promised Messiah has and is being fulfilled. Every promise is being fulfilled. Ancient promises, hundreds of years, thousands of years old, have borne the test of time. And others are being fulfilled right now. All over the world where people are finding their need for a Savior and experiencing that promised salvation through Jesus Christ. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. He keeps it to prove his indomitable love for you. If you read Matthew 1 and 2, you see that Jesus' birth was promised by God. God made sure that when Jesus shows up, that that there has been someone preparing the people to be looking out for, to be aware of, anticipating Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior's coming. And he did it through a man that was promised hundreds of years earlier, to come and do just that. The man's name is John. You might have heard him referred to as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. John has come at a time where the nation and its leadership were destitute. They've been looking for God to show up and at least say something uh, through a prophet, but it's been nothing but crickets for 400 years. Spiritually, emotionally, politically, Militarily, Israel has been sinking into oblivion with no word from God. There's a national and personal dread in the lives of Israel. They were asking themselves, where is God in all of our despair? So how about you? Are you starting this year having not heard from God for a while? Are you feeling uncertain about your future? Are you wondering if God cares what's happening to you? If so, you're right where Jesus shows up to prove that he does care for you. That's where we are when we come into Matthew chapter 3. Starting with the first three verses, we read this. In those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When the writers of Scripture want to remake a point or remind of an ancient prophecy, they often point to where it's been said before. And you do this too. I mean, by now, many of you have written research papers or term papers or work proposals, and you cite your reliable sources by quoting them or footnoting them. Matthew does this by citing the book of Isaiah, which contains this prophecy given 700 years earlier. Matthew, throughout his gospel, points out some of these promises made, promises kept, of John's and Jesus' life. These quotes prove that these ancient prophecies, these, these promises concerning John and Jesus made hundreds of years before came true. And we can't look at all of these this morning, but uh, we can look at Isaiah's 700-year-old promise and the description of this promised person. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice, a voice cries, In the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this verse actually uses a a physical road construction um, as a spiritual metaphor. For obvious reasons, the speed and ease of ancient travel and safety, an ambassador would travel ahead of his returning king. Travel ahead to make sure that there was a way for him, that there was a road constructed for him. Isaiah 40 is quoted here in Matthew 3.3 as the spiritual fulfillment of an ambassador's coming and his work. John the Baptist is the ambassador preparing the hearts of Israel through a message of repentance to welcome Jesus, their king, who brings with him the inauguration, the start of the kingdom of heaven. John's calling for these people to, to clear out the obstacles out of their lives that might hinder their reception of their Lord and King. He calls for people to get themselves ready, to prepare their heart and their life for the arrival of the King and the kingdom of heaven. Now, this would have been a very convicting and compelling message, but it also would have been a very exciting message as well. By this time, the people of Israel kind of had their fill of Greek and Roman kingdoms and the the rulers that dominated them. They desperately wanted a return to the promised earthly glories of the ancient monarchies of King David and King Solomon and their descendants. But that time has not come. That time has not come yet. The earthly national promise to Israel awaits fulfillment even today. But what we can say is that the kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus. It has started, but the full earthly manifestation of his kingdom has not yet arrived. What is evident in the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, is that the one who is to spiritually prepare the nation of Israel has come, and he is John. John is just as the ancient prophets promised. And the spiritual preparations of John can best be described as, again, repentance, a baptism of repentance. 
Let's look and see the impact that John had uh, in verses 4 through 6. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey, wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, interestingly, the description of John's appearance and uh, his diet is, is intended to make an impact on us today as well, just as it did to John, to the people that John spoke in his day. And you and I, we, we may not get this, but that's because we don't understand the comparison to the Old Testament prophets. So recognize this, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew, John is likened to the Old Testament prophet, prophet Elijah, who lived around 850 B.C. And his ministry is described in First and Second Kings, if you want to read that. There, Elijah is described as a man who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. This attire uh, later became just regularly associated with Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist, his austere clothing and personality and moving at the Lord's leading through the wilderness areas of Israel created a distinctly bold and prophetic type of ministry. John's diet of locusts and honey, that was the staple of the very poorest in society. He was also humble and peaceable with peoples whose hearts sought to live rightly before God. Uh, those people, as opposed to the religious leaders, most often responded to his call for repentance. Being more desperate to hear from God, and John's call for repentance resulted in people sensing conviction in their hearts from God. And repentant people baptized in the water of the Jordan River was symbolic of their spiritual cleansing and commitment. John's call to repentance is like the prophets of the Old Testament. He's calling people into a right relationship with God that must affect every aspect of their lives. And that's true for us today as well. Repentance always calls for a change in a person's attitude towards God, which would then impact their actions and overall direction in life. But as similar as John's message is to the Old Testament prophets, there's a distinctly new sound to it. He calls for a people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is now near. That's what's new. The kingdom has come near in the soon arriving Messiah. And verse 5 says that not the leaders, not the spiritual or national power brokers or the elite, but the common people all over the region were responding to John's message. Their confession of sin, their repentance was preparing their hearts and instilling hope. They are looking for the promises of God. As we noted earlier, John is the one foretold by Isaiah, who'd prepare uh, Israel for their king and his kingdom's arrival. And Jesus himself backs that up as he comments on John. Later in Matthew 11, we're going we're to see this. Uh, Jesus says, uh, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, 
And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Furthermore, in the Gospel of Luke, which we looked at over Advent, the angel of the Lord tells Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, that John's going to turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. There's that Old Testament prophet again. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to wisdom, uh, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for, a Lord, for the Lord a people prepared. And what the angel said there is actually a quote from Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, written about 400 years before his birth. Now, <laughs> about now, maybe the only people that wake out here are the Old Testament scholars, okay? I get it, I get it. But I reference all these ancient texts to make this point. When you more clearly see as God sees, you can more courageously do as God says. That might be worth repeating. When you more clearly see as God sees, you more courageously do as God says. God makes good on his promises. You can trust him. He promises a lot of good, especially for those whose hearts are set on Jesus, who is the promised king of heaven and savior of the world. So where is your heart? Is it on the road to confession and repentance to receive the king's gift of righteousness? Is it filled with a sense of hope of what God can do in and through you? As I said, John was humble, more peaceable with the people who sought to live rightly before God. But he was way more abrupt. He was more abrasive with the hypocrites and the self-righteous people. Verses 7 through 12 kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot uh, that was typical of his interactions with Israel's spiritual elite, the religious leaders. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, spiritual elite, coming to his baptism, he says, You brood of vipers! That makes you no friends. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say uh, of yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, from able from, the, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here John is calling them out. He's calling out the hierarchy of religious leaders for their hypocrisy, for their self-righteousness. He calls them vipers, poisonous snakes, deceptive servants, serpents. And next week we will see this serpent motif strike again. John is saying that they're deceiving themselves first and foremost. They're suffering from their own poison if they, they think that their family tree makes them a good spiritual tree because their actions really, really reveal who they really are. John finishes speaking to them with these strong words. He says, I baptize you with 
water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here he's pointing to the promised Messiah, Savior of the world, who will also be judge of the world. There's an eternal accounting coming, and it's in the hands of the one mightier than I. That's what he's saying. There's a coming and impending judgment where the redeemed will be rewarded and the unredeemed will be condemned. Harsh words. John's words. Jesus' words. John says, this is not some unlikely someday. This is an unavoidable judgment day. Now, in these last five verses, we're going to see Jesus, John, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, all come together for the greatest promise ever. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember we said that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That meant it was a spiritual practice that acknowledge one's sin, and it was a commitment, a promise to turn away from living in sin. John knows that Jesus has no sin. In fact, John calls Jesus the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Old Testament sacrificial language means that that Jesus is without sin, so a baptism of repentance really doesn't apply to him. And so John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. Basically, he's saying, Jesus, look, you can't be baptized by my baptism because mine is a baptism for sinners. So what John is saying to Jesus, you're not a sinner. I know you are not a sinner. John's declaring, on the other hand, that I am a sinner. I need to be baptized by you. I and everyone else are sinners, but not you, Jesus. So why does Jesus insist on being baptized? It's to be identified with sinners. How so? Back in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, it says of the promised suffering servant king, all those titles apply to Jesus. That by his wounds we are healed. He shall bear the iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered, identified with transgressors, identified with sinners. 
To summarize what many Bible scholars say, Jesus submitted to John's baptism, symbolically identifying with the repentant sinners who were seeking salvation. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is where it began. This is probably the very first time publicly that Jesus revealed the the promise that the Apostle Paul would later go on to say to the Corinthian church that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless. He was sinless when he was crucified on the cross and he was sinless at his baptism. But Jesus obeyed God the Father from baptism to burial so that he could receive our sins and we could receive his righteousness. And that's why Jesus says of his own baptism that it must be done to fulfill not some, but all righteousness, to complete all that God has set out for him to do. Jesus is saying that it's the will of God for him to be baptized by John in order to be identified with sinners. Not because he is one, but he, so that he can be identified. Others will see him. God made promises. God kept those promises. Every promise, all for your good, my good, has, is, and will be kept. And Matthew shows here, God kept his ancient promises. His promises of sending John, the ambassador, and Jesus, our Savior. And the word that God chooses to describe Jesus, the words that God chooses to describe Jesus, are also steeped in these ancient prophecies. When God speaks in verse 17 and says, this is my son, he uses text right out of the Messianic Psalm 2. That passage describes the the future Messianic king who was to rule. In that Psalm, God is saying, this is my son, this is the king who's going to rule all nations. Nations are going to conspire against him, but he will rule them. This is Psalm 2. This is my son. Jesus is the holy Messiah who is who's going to come in strength and rule all nations. And, and when God the Father said of Jesus, with whom I am well pleased, that's a quote from Isaiah 42. In several chapters of Isaiah uh, 42 and 53 especially, we see comparisons and contrasts of the Messianic king who is also a suffering servant. The holy king is also a suffering servant. That's the reason why John the Baptist is confused. John knows he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. Jesus should be baptizing him. Jesus says, no, because I've come as a substitute. I've come to identify with you and with others to fulfill the greatest promise ever. I've come to take your sinful place. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as I close this morning, maybe the the most amazing promise that comes to us that we can have fulfilled is salvation through Jesus Christ. But be clear, Jesus is not our example. He's way more than that. Meaning Jesus didn't come to show us how to work hard to earn or merit eternal life. We cannot. 
But Jesus is our substitute. He does what we could never do. He lives a perfect, holy, and sinless life. And then he offers his righteousness in payment for our sins that is given to us that we receive as gift. It's grace to us. God makes these promises to us. God promises to be just, which means he says evil must be punished. Otherwise, there really is no justice. And amazingly, he's a compassionate God as well. A God who says there must be grace, there must be mercy too. And only he knows and is powerful enough to make that happen. So, stick around. Stick around through the study of Matthew, and you're going to see that God says that he promises us that we're more sinful than we ever imagined, but we are more loved than we could ever dream. And that God's grace not only provides for our eternity, but empowers us right here, right now, for the most fulfilling life possible. Yes, you can trust God for a joy-filled eternity, but you can also trust him for earthly victory. Next week, it's going to be great. Next week, we're going to see how we can make a life-changing promise to ourselves and to God and keep it. So based on this passage here are some things to think about as you start your week, application one, find out what God promises you. Because he's going to keep those promises. He will deliver on them. And one way to find out uh, those promises is start reading or rereading the Gospel of Matthew with us this winter. Application two, make a promise to God. Make a promise to God that will strengthen or deepen your relationship with him. And whether you keep that promise flawlessly or struggle in it, I promise you, you will grow through it. And you will learn something in it. Let's pray. Father, we know. We know. And we want to know even more deeply. This is what we want to know more deeply. You are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. You are for us. You are with us not just in a glorious eternity, but right now, in the messiness of life, you are for us. You promise us, and you keep your promises to us. And for that, we are grateful. And for that, we have a stewardship that comes along with our salvation, that we would live out, just as we sang, that we would live out the, the family um, Uh, appearance, that we would be your sons and daughters, not just in song, but in life. The family characteristics would be visible, not only in our hearts, but in our community. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand. And for those of you who uh, would like to, feel free to come forward at the end of the service. Uh, We'll be glad to speak with you and pray with you. Here's the benediction before we take off. It comes from 1 John 2, verses 24 and 25.
Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. That's the promise. Seek that promise this week. Have a great week.